On this episode, I'm in the room with author Chris Bruno discussing his new book, The Whole Message of the Bible in 16 Words. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 55. My name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm the senior pastor at Harvest Bible Chapel in Hickory, North Carolina. In the Room is your opportunity to listen to- Home of the crawdads. Home, that's true. Home of the, what is that, single A? I believe so. I single A. Yeah. I know that Tebow was here the other week. That's all so I know. So here's good news. Good news is now listeners know who the crawdads are. Bad news is if you're a first time listener, you don't know what in the room is because I was rudely interrupted to talk about a minor, <laughs> minor league baseball team. Continue. In the room's a podcast. You know what it is. So we talk about stuff and it's great. The uh, rudest of the two of us is Scott Holdhouse. Here. And so he's here and we're Ready taking attendance interrupt. now. So uh, today I'm talking to Chris Bruno, uh, who's written a great book called The Whole Message of the Bible in 16 Words. It's a super accessible biblical theology uh, that I found super helpful. One of my favorite things about talking to Chris is that I learned he lives in Hawaii. Um, which I think I even joked when I talked to him, I don't even think you have to love Jesus to do ministry in Hawaii. It's That's, not even fair. You did joke about that. You went to Hawaii recently. I did a couple years ago. It was great, but I want to ask you, I don't, I don't tell Scott <laughs> these questions, so I'm always excited to see here how we I go. answer. Here so we go. If, if you could, yeah. aside from like, it's God's will that you're here and you just moved here and you can't leave. Yeah. If you could just, you're going to pick it purely based on geography and you could do ministry, live anywhere in the, in the world, mm-hmm. where would it be? Muncie, Indiana. <laughs> I live there. That's a bad choice. Uh, I think uh, Oceanside, California. Oh, yeah, that's a good pick. Yeah. I, I think, like that place. I think... Home of the Top Gun House. It is home of the Top Gun House mm-hmm. that I ran by and saw. Yeah. It's in super rough shape it's, right now. It's seen better days. Yeah. yeah. Those Tom days, Cruise has not been there in a real long time. <laughs> Those days were in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that is, yeah, that's probably one of my favorite places that's in the country. Pick. What I'd, about you? I'd pick Hawaii. Really? Oh, yeah. It was like the best place we've ever been. It was amazing. Does being on an island freak you out, though, a little bit? No, because it's not like a tiny little island. Like, That's you don't true. really know you're on an Wait, island. Wait, it's not? <laughs> it's pretty big. Yeah, it's pretty big. Yeah. It was awesome. We went to Oahu is where Honolulu is, and uh, we loved it. So that's where I would go. And I'm pretty sure that's where Chris Bruno is, though I think shortly after our conversation, he announced, I think he's moving back to like Minnesota, Mm. which I cannot think of a worse move than going from Hawaii to Minnesota. Yeah. So now now we know he loves the Lord because you have to to do that move. Yeah, and if you're really into ice hockey, that's a good move. That's a good move. Yeah. Yeah. I hate ice hockey, so I don't care. There you go. All right, so... This is my conversation with Chris Bruno discussing his new book, The Whole Message of the Bible in 16 Words. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on In the Room. I really appreciate it. We don't know each other thus far, so I'd love to hear just a little bit about uh, your story, uh, where you're from originally, and uh, kind of just how you've gotten to where you are in ministry, what that's looked like for you, where you are now. So to start, um, just tell me about where you're from originally. Sure. Well, uh, I'm really glad to be with you on uh, the podcast. This is a podcast, right? It is a podcast, Uh, yes. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm thankful to, to be invited on and get to have this conversation and looking forward to it. Um, so I, uh, I live in Hawaii at the moment, but I grew up in southeastern Michigan, uh, 
so not originally from the islands. Um, grew up in Michigan in a Christian family where I heard the gospel at a young age. And uh, in my high school years, uh, just felt a desire and call towards ministry. So pursued that uh, through my college years. Uh, after I finished college at a small Christian school in Northeast Wisconsin, I, uh, I spent two years at Bethlehem Baptist in Minnesota. Oh, okay. Where, uh, before the seminary was there, they had a two-year pastoral apprenticeship. Um, so I did that uh, okay. over over a decade ago now. And and that's where I was introduced to biblical theology, what we're going to be talking about in a little bit. But uh began to see the Bible as a story, one unified story about Jesus, and began to put some of the pieces together, uh, just doing some reading there and the classes I was in. Uh, from there, I finished my MDiv down at Southern Seminary in Louisville. And uh, after that, uh, did a PhD at Wheaton College at their grad school, uh, working with Doug Moo, and uh, really grateful for the uh, the training that uh, I've been entrusted with. It's, uh, I know a lot of people have invested in uh, those particular schools, and uh, so I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to, to study there. Uh, after I finished at Wheaton, I came out here to Hawaii, uh, well, stayed in Wheaton area for about a year and a half after I finished and helped with a church plant and a couple other things. And then I uh, came out here to Hawaii to help uh, a pastoral training institute. So okay. a number of churches were partnering together, trying to train pastors here in the island, something that uh, there wasn't good access to. Um, yeah. So I was involved with that for a few years and then came back to the mainland uh, for about a year and a half. And yeah. then back to Hawaii again, where I'm working. My full-time job is at a, a classical Christian school, and then I'm involved with Kailua Baptist Church, where I serve in ministry, doing a number of teaching-type things, and then uh, have my, my hand in a few different pies out here. But uh, That's great. I think yeah. the, most, the most important question I have to ask you is, uh, sure. do you have any job openings in Hawaii? <laughs> Yeah, there are. Just let me know what you're looking for. All right. Well, my wife and I came uh, to Honolulu (laughs) for our 10 year anniversary two years ago, and uh, it was exceptional. We loved it. So I'm quite aware of the fact that um, you don't even have to actually love Jesus to be in ministry in Hawaii. So, (laughs) so your your sincerity is questionable in my book. Yeah, that's the kind of people we want out here. People who don't actually (laughs) love Jesus. So on that on that transition from uh, here to Hawaii, was there what were, were there any challenges in that for you? Because I know that there's varying levels of of acceptance of you know people coming from the outside and and how were you perceived yeah. or what were the challenges moving there and doing ministry? Yeah, that that is a good question because um, the reality is it it is a beautiful place, no doubt about mm-hmm. it. Beaches, mountains, all those sorts of things. Yeah, but just like anywhere else, once you kind of get under the surface and get into daily, day-to-day life, people are people. Yeah. Um, sin is sin. Everybody needs the gospel. And, and there are particular challenges here um, because of the cost of living. You know, yeah. the price of paradise is high. Yeah. Uh, we've got one of the highest cost of livings in the, in the country. And, uh, for many people, wages are not commensurate with that high cost of living. So people often have to work two jobs just to make ends meet. 
a lot of young couples uh, live with their parents and grandparents. There's lots of multi-generational homes. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, it's a unique culture in a lot of ways. And then East meets, East meets West here. Yeah. So you have, you have a strong Asian influence, but you have an influence from California. You have an influence from uh, the other parts of the mainland. And then there's a lot of military here. Yeah. So it's, it's this, uh, not really a melting pot, but more of a tossed salad of cultures. Yeah. Um, so coming into that, you, you just have to be aware of, uh, you know, the challenges and, and the opportunities as well. So we, uh, as uh, I'm a Midwesterner, mm-hmm. and uh, I felt like in a lot of ways I could identify with uh, some of the Pacific Islander cultures, not to say there aren't challenges, because there certainly are, but yeah, it's a strong family focus. Uh, emphasis on good food, <laughs> yeah. a lot of <laughs> So uh, in some ways that we could identify with them more than we could identify with like California surfer culture. So yeah. it was just interesting to, to look at the cultural dynamics and try to step into that and minister in, effective, in an effective way. And, and what I found is, you know, this is true, whether you're ministering in Hawaii or Los Angeles or Chicago or New York is, uh, don't try to pretend you're something that you're not, right? Mm-hmm. Just be yourself, um, be authentic with people. I know that's kind of a cliched word, but just be genuine with people. Yeah. Um, don't try to be, uh, you know, Japanese if you're a Haole, which is white, yeah. Uh, yeah. mainlander. Just be yourself, love people, love God, and uh, and trust that the word will do its work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's good advice no matter where you are. We just moved here. We're in North Carolina now, and we were in Chicago uh, before that. And uh, so from the north to the south, from a big city to a smaller town, um, and that has really been our approach as well, is to just try to be ourselves and to love genuinely. And so I think that's great advice regardless of where people go. Yeah. Well, okay. your, uh, your new book um, is uh, phenomenal. Uh, and going to be very, very helpful uh, to a lot of people. And uh, it's a it's a um, accessible biblical theology uh, in many ways. And so, interestingly enough, you are the second biblical theologian uh, that I've talked to in the last couple of weeks, or author oh. that's written on this topic. And uh, and I was just wondering for those that are newer to uh, theology in general, or might have some confusion around. What what makes biblical theology distinct? You know, some people might think, well, isn't sure, all sure. isn't all theology biblical? So I'm just wondering, a, sort of, what your working definition is of biblical theology. Yeah, that's good. And you know, I think you're right that for people who aren't kind of clued into the conversation, or they haven't read certain things, or had certain classes, you hear biblical theology and you think, well we want all of our theology to be biblical, right? Right. Which we do. But, but when, uh, when I talk about biblical theology, when we use it in the more, uh, formal sense, we're not just talking about theology that's biblically faithful, but it's a way of approaching the scriptures and doing theology that is trying to, uh, trace the unfolding narrative and unfolding themes of the scriptures. So the the way that I, I, I talk about it with people is uh, systematic theology, which a lot of people are familiar with from mm-hmm. like Wayne Grudem, systematic theology, yeah. things like that. But the discipline of systematic theology is to try to gather 
everything the Bible teaches about a particular topic into mm-hmm. one place and, and look at it at once. Yeah. So everything the Bible teaches about sin, gather that up and create a systematic picture. Everything the Bible teaches about salvation, gather that up, create a systematic picture, a comprehensive picture. Um, biblical theology on the other hand, is tracing the unfolding themes throughout Scripture. Mm-hmm. So in my first little biblical theology book, what I was trying to do is trace the, the narrative or the story of Scripture. In this book that just came out, I'm tracing 16 key themes or words throughout Scripture. Yeah. So you're tracing along uh, the progressive revelation or the progressive unfolding of these themes so that w- what you're trying to do is uh, uh, follow. We have to be careful how we say it. We, we don't want to yeah. be too, too confident with, with uh, how much we think we actually uh, know about the motives of the biblical authors or something sure. like that. But we, we want to follow the, the symbols, the patterns, the themes, the, the ways of thinking, the ways of doing theology that the writers of scripture are, uh, are using. That's, that's, a, that's a great answer. How, what, what are some reasons that you think it's so un, important that we understand how the Bible holds together? Because that's one of the things that I think that yeah. your book is super helpful in is, is, is sort of seeing how these particular words and, and the themes that they uh, embody really are not just isolated to one place, but really do track from beginning to end in scripture. And so, you know, what, what do you think is some of the practical importance of really understanding how the Bible holds together or fits together or the danger of not understanding that? Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's super important. <laughs> if yeah. I can use that technical term. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, it's very important to see that the Bible is a unified whole, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not just an isolated series of uh, stories uh, that were all collected into one volume just by happenstance. It tells one unified story. So from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, uh, it's one story. Now, mm-hmm. the amazing thing is that it was written over 1,500 years by about 40 or so different authors. Um, but it, w- it was inspired by one God. Mm-hmm. And so to, to see the unity of the scriptures, I think, is, is really significant for any Christian. And, and beyond that, uh, I think that the writers of the Bible read the Bible this way. This is how Jesus put together his Bible. In, uh, in Luke 24, it's a, a well-known passage when you're thinking about biblical theology. Jesus was on the road to the, or he was walking with two disciples uh, from Emmaus to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he told them that they were foolish and slow of heart to understand the way the Bible fit together. Mm-hmm. He said foolish and slow of heart. To, to, they failed to see that the whole Bible fit together as a story about Christ. Yeah. So, uh, at the very least, we have to say, uh, if we're not putting the Bible together as a unified whole, uh, then Jesus might call us foolish. <laughs> and uh, right. I, I, I don't want to be a fool. <laughs> yeah, I don't good. want Jesus to call me a fool or slow of heart yeah. to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Yeah. Um, 
so it's absolutely necessary to to see the unified whole. And and then the the flip side of that, the danger you asked about Mm -hmm. is uh, if we're not seeing how it all fits together, we're going to misunderstand it, right? Yeah. Yep. We're gonna, it's inevitable that we're going to misinterpret it. Uh, yep. If we don't understand the way that King David's story fits into what has come before mm-hmm. and what comes after, we don't understand that, that David is a descendant of Abraham, that he's yep. from the tribe of Judah, that God made certain promises to Judah that there would be a king from his tribe. So then David is the fulfillment of those promises. But David is also pointing forward to a greater king yet to come. Yeah. I mean, we could spend a whole hour just talking about that and, and how that, that helps us fit the Bible together. Because if we if we just isolate David's stories, then we, we end up falling into a, kind of a moralism, right? That yeah. uh, David's just our example. Yeah. We want to be like David. We want to slay the giants in our lives, all, all that sort of thing. Hey, sorry for interrupting the conversation, but I wanted to tell you about uh, a project that I've worked hard on over the last year and I'm very excited about. It's my new book, Eight Hours or Less, Writing Faithful Sermons Faster. Uh, Time in our culture is one of our greatest commodities. And one of the biggest time investments for pastors is certainly sermon preparation. Uh, But what if there were a way for you to write better sermons in less time? And that's really my hope and my prayer for my new book, Eight Hours or Less. Uh, It's a step-by-step guide for improving your process and being the best steward of time uh, that God's given you. And so if you have not yet had an opportunity and you've been blessed by the podcast, uh, it would be a huge blessing to me if you would uh, run over to amazon.com or uh, my website, ryanhugley.com and pick up your copy of Eight Hours or Less. Um, Well, I want to press in on a couple of these chapters and have you just kind of give a high-level explanation of some of these themes that that you do such a great job of in the book. But your opening chapter um, is all about the end, uh, which for a lot of people would seem like an ironic place to start, uh, is at the end. Um, And you spend a fair amount of time on the subject of eschatology. And so I was wondering if you could just maybe explain that term for people who may not be familiar with the term eschatology, and then talk a bit about how our understanding of the end impacts the way that we would live now. Yeah, sure. Um, So eschatology, uh, some Christians don't even have a a clue what that means. Um, Mm -hmm. but, But I think many Christians hear eschatology and they think, like rapture charts and things right. like that. You know, the, right. the guy on TV with the huge chart behind him and it has <laughs> right. detailed maps, detailed charts of, you know, when the Antichrist is going to come that's and right. all, all that sort of thing. A bunch of canned food in their basement. and That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so they read in the newspapers, you know, they thought it was Saddam Hussein and then now they yeah. think it's Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump or yeah. Barack Obama. Which they, or they, they might be right about Trump. The jury's still out. We don't know for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the <laughs> we should probably leave that alone. We'll just move along from that part. Yeah, that was we'll, a joke. We'll to be clear, going. everybody can can just <laughs> see sending me emails about my Trump joke. He's not the Antichrist. I don't think we'll yeah. see. Brian said it, not me. Folks. That's oh. right. That's right. Um. So, but but what I want to emphasize in the book, though, is that's not really the most important thing to understand about eschatology. It's a lot bigger picture. Yeah. And, and so 
uh, on the one hand, uh, those particular details about figuring out the timing of, of Jesus' return, which we're not supposed to do anyways, but right. trying to figure that out, uh, that, that shouldn't be our, our uh, emphasis when we're talking about eschatology, really. Yeah. Uh, we should long for Jesus to return, look forward to the day of his return, study the scriptures, be clear about what the Bible teaches about his return, which is probably uh, millennialism, but that's another conversation. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I shouldn't have even said that word, because then we have to, <laughs> regardless fine. of what your millennial view is, yes. um, there's, uh, eschatology is, on the one hand, less important than you probably think, but on the other hand, more important than you probably think. Mm-hmm. I think it's less important because we can disagree on some of those issues and still be in the same church even. Yeah. Uh, but it's more important than we might think because uh, it spans almost the entire scriptures if we're understood, if we're understanding it rightly. That is, uh, eschatology, I define in the book as something like a, how God is going to bring his end-time uh, promises to their conclusion through Christ, something like that. Yeah. And uh, so how God is going to keep his promises, how God is going to act in history to keep his promises and bring uh, his redemptive plan to its intended end. Love that. So if we think about eschatology in those terms, like God is going to keep his promises, God is going to uh, do what he said he's going to do. God is actually going to save his people and redeem the earth. Uh, we began to think about eschatology in broader terms, and, and, but we also know that God has intervened uh, right now. Mm-hmm. Through Jesus, he's begun to keep those end-time promises. Yeah, so That's why theologians talk about the already and the not yet. Yeah, yep. Right? you did a great job with that. It's a very helpful explanation in the book. Yeah, I think it's important to see that, you know, already God is keeping his promises in and through Jesus, but there's more yet to come. Yeah. And so that, that frames our whole understanding of the, the story of the Bible and our place in that story right now. Yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm pre- teaching through John's gospel right now, and uh, and you just see that already not yet tension throughout, you know, and that there is a sense in which as a Christian, we already have eternal life. And then obviously we don't fully realize all that that is until Christ returns. And so that is just everywhere, um, throughout God's word. I found your chapter on God to be one of my favorites. Um, you open, uh, with your own love for the way that Tolkien, uh, unfolds the character of Bilbo Baggins, uh, throughout the Hobbit. And then you contrast it with the revelation of God in the Bible. And I wanted to read this because you write, um, unlike the story of Bilbo Baggins, however, what we see in the Bible is not the gradual transformation of a character into a hero. Instead, we see the gradual revelation of the standard of all other heroes. And I love that. And what I immediately thought about that as I was reading that was <clears throat> the common misconception that people have. So as we, as you read The Hobbit and you see the way that, that, that Bilbo changes through the story. His character changes and grows and strengthens. And, um, and, and I was thinking about that as you were writing that. And I was reading about the, pers- the, uh, the misconception that people have that the God of the old Testament, uh, 
mm-hmm. is somehow entirely different than the God of the New Testament. That yeah. he's like, whatever it was, God needed a nap in the Old Testament, and so he was really <laughs> cranky and full of wrath. And then you get to the New Testament, and he's like this feather-haired hippie holding sheeps, or sheep, <laughs> and he's just like nice all the yeah. time. So yeah. speak to that a little bit, that particular misconception that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New. Yeah, that's a good observation. And I I mean, we see it all the time in our culture today. Um, You know, people love Jesus, but they don't like his dad. It's kind of the perception, right? That's right, right. yeah. Uh, He's got this mean dad, uh, but he's a cool guy. Um, But I I think this is where biblical theology actually helps us as well. Because if we're we're putting the the whole story of of the Bible together, we're seeing it as one unified story that tells about one God and one Savior who came to redeem one people. Um, mm-hmm. Then we see there's a, there's a unity in God's plan and purposes and character throughout the whole thing. So the God who uh, judged Adam and Eve by sending them out of the garden in Genesis 3 is also the God who in, in Genesis 3 uh, promised that he would crush the head of the serpent one day. That's right. Mm-hmm. The God who judged uh, Israel by sending them into exile in Babylon is also the God who, while they were in exile or when they were about to go into exile, promised that it, there would be a new covenant when he would uh, turn their hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Yeah. So the God who judges is also the God who saves throughout the Old Testament, but that's also true in the New Testament, right? The mm-hmm. God who judges is also the God who saves. Uh, in our church uh, uh, here in Kailua, my pastor is, is uh, preaching through Revelation right now, mm-hmm. almost done with it. And uh, the, the picture of Jesus in Revelation is not, uh, you know, a, a hippie uh, who's holding a sheep and, uh, right. you know, eat Ben and Jerry's ice cream or something. The, the, the right. picture of Jesus in Revelation is a God who judges and a God who saves. It's entirely right. consistent with uh, what we see throughout the whole story. So I think that perception is just a failure to understand the whole story of Scripture. It's, mm-hmm. again, I think it's just taking out isolated stories. So you take out the feeding of the 5,000 or something like that. Yeah. Oh, look, at Jesus is so nice. He's got this nice little boy who shares his fishes and loaves, and he, he gives the people something to eat. But yeah. they, they fail to couch it in a broader story where Jesus is the bread of life that's pointing back to uh, God providing manna for Israel. There's just so many themes that are woven into that. Uh, So if we don't, and that's really, that's my goal in these books, not to to paint a comprehensive, comprehensive picture, but to give people uh, at least a a bit of an appetite towards wanting, towards uh, wanting to put the pieces together seeing that there it's more than just reading, you know, read your verse for the day in isolation from everything else and try to come up with an application that, that fits it without thinking about where it fits into the whole uh, broader story of scripture. Yeah, that's good. How about a couple of these other themes that you, that you hit on? Um, You just mentioned a, a minute ago, this new covenant that God gave his people Israel just prior to exile. So covenant's not a, a, necessarily something that we're super familiar with uh, in our culture. We don't necessarily understand that. We might have heard people use the old covenant, new covenant language, but but just 
explain a little bit about this theme of covenant and the way that it, how it unfolds throughout scripture. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. People don't understand covenants. Even when we talk about marriage, the marriage covenant, uh, yeah. Our view of marriage has been so twisted and distorted. We, I mean, we don't need to go down that path, but, yeah. you know, a covenant is not uh, just a contract where I, I sign a document uh, for my benefit, hope to get something out of it, and I can cancel it whenever it's not working for me anymore. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a, in the book, I define it as a relational promise marked by a faithful love. Mm, so that's good. a covenant relationship uh, there's there's a real relationship there, so there there's a it's more than just a, a business contract. Mm-hmm. There's a, a genuine love, uh, genuine concern for the uh, the well being of other people, uh, but it's also a promise. You actually commit to something. Yep. <laughs> you say you're going to do something. Yeah. Uh, Which in and of itself is foreign in our culture. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and it's unfortunate that we don't understand covenants uh, anymore uh, mm-hmm. because the Bible is so, uh, the whole story of Scripture is framed in terms of covenant. It's so mm-hmm. important that we understand at least uh, some uh, key aspects of, of covenant because, uh, you know, not everybody agrees with me, but I, I think uh, the way you put the Bible together is just the unfolding uh, of God's covenant of redemption mm-hmm. and, it, and it's uh, unfolded through a series of covenants which serve to uh, fulfill each other. So yep. uh, P- Peter Gentry and Steve Wellam wrote a book mm-hmm. called Kingdom Through Covenant. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a graduate of Southern Seminary I mentioned earlier. So yeah. I had both of those guys in seminary and uh, I think I made a note in the book that I'm dependent on them and have learned a lot about covenants from them. Um, Although I don't agree with everything they say in the book, uh, mm-hmm. I, I do think their overall structure is helpful. So that they see like each successive covenant is building on, fulfilling, uh, adding to the ones that have come before. So the you know the, the Abrahamic covenant is a way that God is keeping His covenant with Adam and with all of creation, so that all all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham, and then the the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, mm-hmm. uh, the law covenant, the way that God is keeping his, his uh, covenant with Abraham. He, so that the point of Israel was to bless all the families of the earth. They're Abraham's descendants. Right. Uh, but it, Israel failed to do that. Uh, in the midst of that, there's the Davidic covenant, which was also intended to fulfill the covenants that had gone before and so when we get to the new covenant, they're all brought together in the new covenant, which is uh, uh, embodied and fulfilled in Jesus. That's why Paul right. can say in 2 Corinthians one twenty, all of God's promises, his, I think he's talking about his covenant promises, are yes and amen through Jesus. Um, so it, it really binds the story of the Bible together mm-hmm. um, in an important way. Yeah. So how about on this topic of, of law? Um, I think there's been a lot of uh, dialogue in the last few years about the the topic of the law and its place in the Christian life on on one extreme. You know, you have some that um, 
that believe that the law has no place in our lives, you know, sort of an antinomian uh, yeah, sure. perspective that says that, you know, basically anytime if you were to preach any command, <laughs> you have failed in your task of preaching grace. And so um, I don't subscribe to that. Um, but it is very confusing for many and to, to know how the law and specifically the law and the gospel fit together. And I, I do think yeah. that again, to your point, um, a biblical theology of this theme does help in so many ways. So tell me a little bit about yeah. how, how, how does this, how does the law unfold through scripture? And then, and then maybe what, what is its place in our lives today? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, like you said, uh, that's a controversial question. There's a lot of conversation about that. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and I haven't studied it as much as some have, but I, I do think, like you said, that uh, biblical theology, a, a proper understanding of biblical theology, and, and even like the covenants, so I was talking about before, um, yeah. you know, the covenants build on each other. So we have to understand the law covenant and ask, okay, how does it relate to the Abrahamic covenant? How does it relate to the new covenant? I think that's what Paul's doing in Galatians 3 mm-hmm. and in other places, kind of asking, where, how does the law fit into this? Mm-hmm. And at least, at least one way uh, that I think he answers that in Galatians and Romans and other places in a way that we can think about it is that uh, Jesus fulfilled the law covenant. Mm-hmm. So Israel failed to keep the law perfectly. Israel failed to remain faithful to Yahweh. Israel failed to be a light to the nations, Israel failed, uh, and that's why Israel was sent to exile. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. Mm-hmm. For that matter, Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. Um, so Jesus kept the covenant that God's people have failed to keep, mm-hmm. including you and me. Yep. Uh, so because Jesus has uh, fulfilled the law covenant uh, and brought the new covenant, uh, we can benefit from all of the promises given to Israel. Uh, Jesus fulfilled the law. Uh, he, he paid the price that we deserve, that Israel deserved, that all human beings deserve in a sacrificial death. Uh, he kept the law perfectly. So now that uh, the law has been fulfilled, that he's done what, what uh, Israel failed to do. Uh, the, the, the glorious thing is then we can begin to actually do it. That's yeah. what the new covenant is about. So God takes out our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. You can't see my gestures, but I mixed up that sure. gesture. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Takes out our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. Yeah. Um, and uh, he begins to enable us to actually keep the law. So mm-hmm. I, I like the way Tim Keller often talks about this. You know, mm-hmm. he, he, he says something like, and I'm probably going to butcher this, so forgive me, Tim Keller fans. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, we couldn't do it. Jesus did it so that now we can begin to do it. Yeah. So I, I think that that's the point in Romans 8, yeah. uh, that uh, there's this righteous requirement of the law that is fulfilled in us, that we begin to keep the point of the law. Because at the end of the day, the point of the law is not, uh, you know, the, the, uh, 
the fabric woven together. It wasn't the, the things that we point to in the law and say, well, this is weird. Yeah. Um, this, is all, this is all pointing to uh, um, God's purpose for Israel to keep them distinct from the nations, but also to make them a light for the nations and fulfill his promises to Abraham. Right. So the point of the law uh, was to be a means of keeping the promises to Abraham, which was supposed to be a means of keeping the promises to Adam, which is a means of undoing uh, sin and death and the curse. Yeah. Um, so we couldn't do that, but Jesus did it. So because of that, we get to now begin to fulfill that purpose of the law of yeah. being a light to the nations, proclaiming God's uh, glorious salvation in a way that uh, we could not had Jesus not fulfilled it on our behalf. Right. I think that's a great way to say that. And so it's not that because Jesus fulfilled the law, we don't have to now obey, but that we can yeah. now obey because yeah. he, he fulfilled it on our behalf. And I think that's a really important distinction to make because I, I do think that, you know, I've never met anyone that self-identifies as an antinomian personally. Uh, and, uh, and so I think we have to be it's careful. Alive, but I think I've, I've come close. Yes. Uh, so I think we have to be careful about labeling people with labels that they would not, you know, pin to themselves. However, I have heard the law talked about, or, or truthfully, just some, you know, basic application of scripture, obedience de-emphasized for fear of somehow calling people to obedience or the pursuit of holiness is anti-grace. And so I think yeah, hearing yeah. even the way that you just articulated that, that, that Jesus fulfillment doesn't mean we don't have to obey, but that we can because of what he's done and because his spirit now dwells within us. I just think that's a really helpful clarification. Yeah. I, I think that's the whole point of the new covenant, or at least one of the points of the new covenant is that God sets us free to obey. Yeah. You know, totally. He, he enables us to obey. Yeah. And so if we're saying we can't ask people to obey or we can't uh, encourage people to pursue holiness or something like that because mm-hmm. it, it, it's, uh, it's legalism. I, I think we're yeah. mis- misunderstanding the new covenant. Yeah. I think that's good. Well, last thing I want to ask you is, you know, what do you say to someone who, you know, they hear all this stuff that we're talking about and, um, maybe they're newer to the Bible. Um, but someone who just feels like, they're drowning in the Bible right now. Like they don't, they don't get it. You know, I talk as yeah, a pastor, yeah. I talk to people, you know, new believers or even people that have been believers for a while. And they're just like, I just feel like I don't, I'm not regularly in the word because I find it confusing. And so what would you say to someone who just feels like they're, they're more drowning in the Bible. They don't get it. They don't see how it fits together. How do they, I will commend that they would read your book because it does very much help with that. But, but how does someone really begin to, to get the whole and to see how it fits together? Yeah, well, I mean, it doesn't have to be my book, but I would encourage them to get resources that are available. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't essential, and I want to be careful because it, we can read the Bible um, without any extra resources and, and put it together. Sure. But we do have a lot of resources available to us. When I mean... When I was beginning to put some of these pieces together, I read uh, Graham Goldsworthy's stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So I would, I would encourage people to look at Graham, Graham Goldsworthy's book, According to Plan, uh, his book, uh, Gospel and Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are helpful tools 
for putting the, the whole story together, understanding how it all fits together. Uh, that, that was the goal of, of my two books, uh, mm-hmm. the whole story of the Bible in 16 verses, and then the whole message of the Bible in 16 words, is to, to give people some, some uh, tools, some coat hooks, or some uh, a framework for understanding how the whole story fits together. So I, I encourage people to grab one or two of those books mm-hmm. and read through them with the understanding, like, this isn't going to answer all my questions about the Bible. Sure. But what it's going to do is give me a framework for understanding how the whole thing fits together. Yeah. And then once you have that framework, uh, then you can be reading, you're reading in Nehemiah and you're, you're reading about this, this seems to be a bureaucratic dispute over the walls, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Yeah. You're thinking, what the heck does this have to do with Jesus? Right. Well, you know, there's something significant about God's people getting back into the land and being uh, rebuilding the city and uh, all the history that goes into that and all the things that, that will come from that. Uh, and you can begin to put the pieces together and see that it, it wasn't just about rebuilding the, the walls of Jerusalem. It, it was about a step toward God keeping his promises to his people that they resettle in the land and eventually— uh, the Messiah would then come uh, and live and die and rise again in that city that they're fighting over the walls that they're mm-hmm. rebuilding. Um, so uh, once you have a structure or at least a, a good picture of the whole, um, then you can begin to fill in the gaps on your own. Yeah. And, and that's the fun. Sure. I think it's fun. At least, yeah. Of uh, the rest of our lives. We can, uh, we can read the Bible and think through, okay, how does, how does this fit into the mm-hmm. big story? How does yeah. this fit with what's gone before? How does this point to things that will come after? And, and I've found in my own life and in the lives of uh, other people I've been around that, that that's really encouraging and exciting as they start to see the way the, way the Bible all fits together, and, mm-hmm. and particularly the way it all fits together as a book that tells us about Jesus and yeah. what he has done for us. Yeah. Yeah, I've, 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 I tell people, I mean, one, just patience and continuing to read, um, yeah, yeah. you know, exposure just over and over and over again, it gets better, it gets easier. And then I might lose my pastor card for this. Cause you, you recommended to like super smart books, but, um, I, I recommend to people, especially if they have kids that they read the Jesus storybook Bible. Yeah. Absolutely. Because uh, I think that she does such a great job in that. I know that that's not inspired. It's not like an actual Bible, but um, the way that she takes these individual stories that, I mean, I even remember growing up in church and having no sense of how these stories fit into the big story, that they were more isolated stories for me, the way that King Arthur or The Hobbit or any of those were just like, you know what I mean? I think she does such a great job of telling the whole, like, so starting in the garden and then all the way you know, through to the end, here's what's happening there. And, and truthfully, even for adults, I've found that to be a really helpful resource. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And, and, uh, the reason why I wrote my 16 verses book a few years ago, a couple of years ago, was, yeah. uh, I, t- I told people, I want to write a book that, uh, people can read in Starbucks without being embarrassed. Uh, yeah. so they don't have to read the kid's book. Yeah, uh, that's right. Because, because I, 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 I do the same thing as you. I encourage people yeah. to read uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible or the the Big Picture Story Bible or things yeah. like that because I, I think it's really helpful. Um, so I'm trying to 
to fill a little bit of a gap between mm-hmm. uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible and you know Graham Goldsworthy and then Greg right. Beal and guys like that. Yeah. Um, so, but I think there's more space there for resources totally. that can help people uh, you know put the pieces together that maybe they can read in a coffee shop without people giving them funny looks. But yeah, absolutely, right. I, I, uh, yeah. I think people should read those. Uh, yeah. And as I read those to my kids, I was helped. Totally, yeah. Well, I think you have given us a great gift um, in uh, both books, 16 Verses being your first one and now 16 Words. And so I uh, will continue to uh, commend them to people in my church, and I hope everybody listening uh, will pick it up as regardless of where anyone is at in regard to their own spiritual and biblical maturity, I think everyone is well served. Uh, So thank you very much for your work and uh, for the conversation. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. My thanks to Chris Bruno for coming on In the Room. Scott, what were some of uh, the things that stood out to you? Yeah, I thought um, his definition that he gave for biblical theology, I thought was really good. Not just because often people hear that and they're like, isn't theology supposed to be biblical? Yeah, isn't all of it? Yeah, yeah, which he calls out. But um, uh, theology that isn't just faithful, but theology that traces the unfolding narrative of the scriptures, Yeah, I think is a great way... Uh, to approach it, which often I think helps then to um, to better understand. So, what exactly you know are we studying? Are we doing? Uh, I also think where he talked about understanding the Bible as one story. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, I remember when I first learned that, and it, it just was massive for me because yeah, me of my whole life it was flannel graph stories mm-hmm. and bits and pieces. Um, and he talks about in there, you know, if we if we don't understand the overarching story, then we won't be able to understand the particular stories, and that mm-hmm. can lead to some dangerous things. It can lead to moralism. Yeah. He talks about, you know, people mistaking us trying harder to be David and to slay the giants in our lives, you know, that sort of thing. And yeah. so, um, I know for me that's been a that's been a something that was really important to learn, and I think he does a great job, obviously talking about it in the episode, but also in his book. Yeah, I what I appreciate about the book in particular is same thing. I was pretty far into my relationship with Christ before I had really even heard anything about biblical theology. Yeah. I had a, I think a good working systematic theology but didn't understand the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. And the importance of biblical theology and it seemed that the things that I could find to help me in that were just like I just couldn't get my head around them. Yeah. And so I think the thing I appreciate the most about this book is how accessible it is. Yeah. And that it's a really great first step into biblical theology that can prime you to be able to understand some of these other works that yeah. have been so helpful. Totally. Yep. Anything else? Um or is that it? I just think one thing is all you took away. <laughs> You know, it's like when I feel like the moment that you learn the Bible is one overarching story uh-huh. is like the moment in the sandlot where that kid realizes the girl that he thought signed his dad's baseball, Baby Ruth, was actually Babe Ruth. The Great also, Bambino. Is an overarching story the same as an overarching story? They're different. Are they different? Yeah. yeah you mean is... they're the same guy? Remember that? That's a great yes, I remember. Oh, it doesn't matter what we talk about at this point because now no one's listening anymore. (laughs) If you are still listening, thank you for listening to In The Room. Uh, As always, you can find us uh, on social media. Uh, I'm at at Ryan Hughley, and Scott is, what are you at? At Scott Holthouse. 
Scott's not good at social media, so it doesn't I'm, really... He's worked hard on Instagram today. I'm, I'm working hard, and I'm working hard at getting better. Yeah, that's good. That's all we can ask of you. There's sanctification in my social media life. <laughs> well, with that, we bid you adieu, <laughs> and we will see you next week for episode 56. Uh.